Okay, hello everyone and welcome. Um, I wanted to uh, uh, say a few obligatory words, although we have our own Fox Harrell here to uh, speak to us and talk about advanced identity representation, representation a project that you know we've been, um, <clears throat> if we've been paying attention, uh, there's been a lot of interesting insight in the formation of this project and the work of this uh, five-year NSF funded project. Um, um, much of the perspective that uh, Fox brings to this is expressed in Phantasmal Media, his MIT Press book. Um, and the, these types of issues um, with identity representation online and computing systems are ones that are very obvious, I think, to anyone encountering social media profiles, online avatars and gaming, uh, a wide variety of um, uh, different ways that people encounter and deal with these systems and, uh, and use computing to uh, connect to each other. Um, but there, I think, uh, for whatever reason, um, not uh, deeply studied and theorized by the people who are building these systems. And Fox's work is, is quite urgent in this regard. Um, so I'm really glad, after, after seeing a, a lot of the steps along the way, the ways that he's framed the project to begin with, um, that he's here to share with us a report on um, uh, what the outcome of this project has been and, uh, and tell us how, you know, how that's going to uh, influence the direction of his research from here out. So uh, with that, I'll uh, leave you with Fox Harrell. Let's welcome him. So thanks, Nick, for the kind intro introduction. And I'm glad to share with you some of the results of this uh, past uh, nearly six-year uh, endeavor, the Advanced Identity Representation Project. You know, so uh, as uh, many of you here know, I'm a faculty member here at MIT, both in the, the Comparative Media Studies program as well as in the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab. And I run a research group called the Imagination, Computation, and Expression Laboratory, or ICE Lab. And so this is a group where we build new forms of interactive narrative, a video game, social media, and I think uh, importantly for me, you know, new forms that aren't anticipated by any of those. You know, so integrating those in sort of interesting uh, new ways. And uh, for today's talk, I'll be you know, speaking to you about the outcome of a five-year project. I call it the Advanced Identity Representation Project, or AIR project. And uh, really, it's looking at the ways that we represent ourselves across different media. You know, so not just uh, the avatars or video game characters or social media profiles, but rather what is shared across all of those platforms and the ways in which we project ourselves uh, through the affordances of each of these types of technology. So to say it a bit more simply uh, here, you know, so the vision for today's talk is uh, presenting a new approach to understanding and revealing the values built into virtual identities. Uh, and uh, these are values such as biases, sexism, racism, and, uh, and, and so forth. And uh, preferences will also relate to body language or fashion or personality and sort of less normative aspects of, of our identity. And what I mean by understanding and revealing, that's uh, both analyzing these systems as well as designing them. So I'll, I'll say a, a little bit more about that in a moment. And you know, something important to highlight here also is that uh, these types of values are often deemed to be cultural values, subjective values, and not the, name, uh, not the domain of so-called uh, so objective utilitarian artificial intelligence. And so the idea is we're actually applying some AI and machine learning tools uh, for kind of qualitative and subjective and cultural study uh, of, these, of these technologies, which I think is a unique aspect of this work. So here's a structure for what, what I'll be talking to you about today. After a brief introduction, uh, then uh, I'll show, share with you some of my motivations for this research, as well as uh, the approach in the book uh, that, that Nick Monfort just, just mentioned, Phantasmal Media, uh, that, that inf informs the vision guiding this work. And then some of the work in analysis, as well as some of the work in design before a brief uh, conclusion. So, you know, so just to, to, to introduce this, what do I mean by uh, 
analyzing how virtual identities implement cultural values. Well, just for one example of research, you know, so in one particular computer game that we've studied, uh, that will be talked about uh, uh, later, uh, and this is a video game I should mention because some people say, well, this is just a, a sort of fun in games. It's a narrow lens on the importance of the medium, but, but I think an interesting one is that if you look at Star Wars adjusted for inflation on its best uh, weekend of sales, you know, so its best weekend of sales, this is for the original Star Wars, A New Hope made $7 million, adjusted for inflation, that's $27.2 million. Now, the video game uh, Skyrim, yeah, Elder Scrolls V uh, 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 Skyrim, actually made $217 million on its first day of release. And, and so when you think about uh, what, what are the impacts of this kind of issue, I mean, that, that's just one sense of the kind of scope of, of what's invo involved. And uh, we actually showed that, that in uh, the, these games that there's a kind of embedded bias against uh, uh, female characters and certain racial groups within the game. I'll show you more about how we revealed that through our machine learning approaches later. So that's one side of our work that's using AI machine learning along with qualitative methods uh, but to analyze these types of systems that are out there uh, in the wild, so to speak, as well as developing our own tools to do so. Now we also build our own systems. And so these are systems such as uh, games to, to express social issues like, what does it feel like to pass as a member of a different group than the, than the group that you consider yourself to be? Uh, can we use virtual identities to help students in, uh, lear in learning, to change the way they see themselves as learners and doers of computer science or engineering? And uh, can we even change the, uh, and impact the, the generation of uh, empathy or understanding the basic humanity of others uh, using these types of technology? And so when I say understanding in that sense, it's through modeling or simulation or, uh, or giving people some set of experiences through which they can understand uh, phenomena around social identity. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit about the motivation for this, uh, this project. I mean, one part of it is just that these types of virtual identities have uh, proliferated these days. And so whether you're talking about a science fiction domain or everyday kind of scenario, whether you're talking about an online character or something like the way that we stage ourselves through social media, you know, then uh, we all have virtual identities these days. eBay, Amazon profiles, uh, I mean, th those I also consider to be uh, virtual identities, uh, uh, just like our characters and avatars in games and virtual reality. And so in terms of analyzing these identities, again, it's this issue that cultural values in the digital media domain are, are, are typically seen as the realm of the social sciences and uh, humanities. And uh, again, I argue that we can begin to find the types of biases and values that are embedded in these kind of systems through looking at sort of patterns in, in their uh, use and, and design. And just to mention, uh, again, the scope of, uh, of the issue, you know, so this is just a, a chart about the global revenue of uh, video game sales. And so you see this, uh, uh, you see this here. Uh, I wonder, does anybody here know what the global revenue of uh, film sales is? Or say was along in the lines of any of these years? Or any guesses? You can tell me when to stop. <laughs> Uh, okay, yeah, so, uh, yeah, that actually is a pretty good uh, guess. <laughs> <laughs> right? and, uh, and so the idea is that, well, if you look at it just this way, you know, that, uh, yeah, say 2013, just the sales of handheld and mobile games uh, alone, not even what we think of as AAA console games or PC games, uh, that already uh, constitutes uh, the global revenue of the, of the film industry which I think is a, is a tell, telling stat about the sort of the pervasiveness of, of, of this uh, medium. 
And interestingly here too, when you begin to look at the demographics of people that use these types of systems, uh, then, uh, uh, then it's you know, not an even uh, gender split, you know, but compared to the stereotype that some people have, you know, say it's more even than some uh, might, might, might imagine. And uh, well, these don't add up to 100 because they're, uh, they can be overlapping categories. And, but you see the demographics also, you know, that, uh, that they're more diverse than, than some people might, might imagine. Well, that's for video games, you know, for social media. Then you can also see that, you know, that, that there is a, sort of a general diversity of uptake and use of, the, of, of these types of uh, media. So I think it's interesting to say again, you know, sort of how pervasive and how diverse the kind of user base of virtual identity systems uh, are. But uh, in contrast, when you begin to look at the demographics, so this is a survey that was, uh, a census that was collected of the actual video game characters themselves in, in uh, a, a number of so the top 150 best-selling games. And so when you begin to look at the demographics of the actual characters and the virtual identities, it's quite different than the demographics of the people that, uh, use, that uh, use these systems. You know, so for example, 86% uh, of characters being, uh, be, being male here, uh, compared to 13%, uh, for about 14% of the, of the characters being female. And you see the racial the demographics as well here. And something to keep in mind too is that these racial demographics are actually skewed when you remove sports games, so that then uh, you know, they completely uh, tip over uh, on uh, the other side of the balance. Uh, right, uh, so as you can see. And for, even more than that, when you begin to think about the content of, of the games, you know, so this is, this is from, from uh, another study that, that, that was conducted, uh, and, uh, and so you know, this is suggesting that 90% of the African-American or black female representations and uh, it's uh, better, but not any kind of rosy picture you know, for uh, white females if you're saying 45% are depicted as props or victims of violence within, within these uh, video games. Right, and even more than that, when you think about the industry itself, right, so this is probably familiar to a lot of the people uh, here, but the kind of, uh, the kind of bullying, harassment, uh, you know, threats you know, faced by female developers. You know, so again, this is just saying, well, how does this kind of bias uh, end up embedded within systems, and why is this such an issue? Uh, I think you can begin to uh, begin just to think about you know, the scope of this this issue when you realize that 73% of uh, uh, women have faced online uh, attacks, and even more than that, that women are 27 times more likely to be victimized on the internet than, than uh, men. So this is a kind of issue uh, that uh, you know, has even been addressed, you know, say, at the level of, of the United Nations. Uh, so in terms of mo motivation, we can say that actually there's a lot at, at stake you know, with, with the sort of current uh, uh, picture that's out there, but also you know, there, there's a lot that can be uh, revealed about these different technologies. And so I'll tell you a little bit about the way that I think about this kind of revealing of these kind of biases from a theoretical standpoint and then from a, a technical and kind of research uh, standpoint. And from a theoretical standpoint, one of the ways I think about them is uh, using the terminology of the, the phantasm. And so this is actually a cognitive science term that relates to phantasmata. That's the idea of sort of men mental imagery. And I'll say for you more specifically what I mean by this, but I sort of like the valence of, of this cognitive term phantasmata because these are sort of semi-visible. You know, they're both apparent to be seen, but, but also uh, a lot of times hide under the surface. It's a topic that I studied in, in my, you know, that, well, uh, uh, that I coined that I termed in the book, uh, Phantasmal Media. And uh, this is a book that's actually about how cultural values are built into computing systems more generally, not just values around social identity, you know, but, but you know, sort of values in a, very, in a broader sense. 
but also how you can use these systems for expression and, and to empower users. So today I'll be focusing on uh, identity representations in video games and, and social media, but uh, the book is much broader about cultural values being embedded in these systems more generally. And so one of the ways I motivate the discussion of uh, Phantasm a lot of the time is with this, uh, with this image, and so I ask the rhetorical question, which is, uh, what does this uh, image represent for you? And uh, people invariably give, you know, say, one of two answers, you know, one of which it is, uh, uh, it is that, that refers to women or, or, or women. You know, the other one is you know, that's just almost the same, but it's just a sign that says this is a place that women only should uh, be you know, from some particular kind of, kind of uh, world, world view. Yeah, uh, but uh, the question I have is, uh, you know, it's very immediate and, and automatic you know, that you get those kind of answers. Again, that's the, the issue that even people that don't subscribe to the, to the view that women should or do or exclusively wear clothes that look like this, they still instantaneously make sense of what this sign means. And so the question is, why do people you know, just have that kind of association, even if they don't, uh, don't, don't think in this way? And so I actually describe it as a distributed cognition process. Yeah, so distributed cognition is a cog sci theory that, that, that uh, suggests that we think uh, not just, yeah, so it's opposed to the kind of order point of view of cognition that everything happens in the head. It's a point of view that uh, actually a lot happens in terms of artifacts that uh, our thinking is distributed out there into the world. And so this is just one, one example of distributed cognition process which is if I were to ask you, how would you tell me which of these shapes has greater area, then how would you tell me the answer to this? Like color. Hey, excuse me? Color. Uh, well, I mean, you know, great, greater uh, uh, area, you know, like how much space is there? You know, how, would you, how would you tell me how, which of these two has a, has a greater, greater area is the question. Right, yeah, yeah, so that, that's one way you could do it. I mean, some people like to say the elementary algebra equation and say, well, I need to know the radius and you know, this, you know, this sort of thing. But uh, of course, you know, one way you can do it, that would be very easy. If I gave it to you like this at the very beginning, you would just say, just look at it. You don't actually have to do any kind of computation. And, and so this is what Ed Hutchins calls a material anchor. The fact is that to make our cognitive processing easier, we offload onto the environment. We can just immediately read from the environment information from it. And, and so the contention here is that we're doing something similar with images you know, such, such as this that become culturally entrenched. The world becomes its own representation without having to do a lot of cognitive processing. We're immediately reading not instrumental values, but uh, cultural values from an image like this. So again, that's this process of cognitive offloading ideology onto images. And for those of you who know this uh, meme that was popular uh, a, a little bit ago that it was never addressed, suggests that that's not the only reading we could have had of that uh, image. Uh, right. And so, in fact, there are, are kind of values embedded in reading this as a dress as opposed to somebody wearing a cape or any other, other sort of thing. It could be a silhouette of. And so what this has to do with social identity systems and, and computing is that uh, when somebody looks at this image and then makes certain kind of cultural assumptions about it in terms of its, uh, uh, about its gender, ethnicity, and so forth, we're also engaging in the same process of distributed cognition and just reading cultural values or ideology just directly from the image without uh, processing it. And similarly for, uh, for images such as uh, uh, this image or, or this image. And so when somebody begins to use these kind of uh, uh, virtual identities within a game, then, then uh, you know, they're also engaging in the, in, in the kind of phantasmal play of values that, that lie behind them. 
In much the same way as uh, you see here, this is the classic study of Kenneth and uh, uh, Mamie Clark from the 40s in which African-American children were asked, which doll is the good doll, which doll looks nice, which doll would you like to play with, and so forth. And then uh, in, uh, with a high degree of uh, likelihood, they see which doll they, uh, they tended to choose. And so, uh, and even at some points, then they were asked, uh, which doll looks like you after this, uh, and which uh, some of the children even broke down into tears at, at, that, at that point, because they began to see what are the kind of cultural assumptions uh, that, that underlie, uh, uh, underlie uh, their, their perception of these dolls. And so in, in the same way that these are semi-visible values that are built into these uh, uh, images, my question is how can we research these kind of phantasms of social identity? How can we help people to better understand them through the gameplay, simulation, and modeling, and also through analysis and, and using technology to, to do so? And so of course, you know, that harkens back to, to the vision for the, to today's talk, which is an, an approach to understanding and revealing exactly these types of values that are built into virtual identities uh, using, uh, uh, using artificial intelligence. So I'll give you a couple of examples, say using AI to, to, to do so. And you, know, you can look at these as just sort of signposts for the sort of analyses that we've done. We've done a number of studies looking at issues such as uh, uh, social status and the way that that plays out in virtual worlds. Uh, race, uh, gender, uh, even uh, sort of body language, and, and, uh, and, and more, the color of images. And so to give you know, the first case study, so some of you were familiar, I uh, use this as a, as a kind of uh, motivation study, you know, sort of anecdotal study, but uh, since then we've also done uh, some computational analysis of this. So this is a game, Elder Scrolls IV Oblivion, and the point is to reveal uh, a bias that's embedded within the system. And so this is a game that has a great degree of customization. And so you can see you know, the range of different types. You know, so even just for your cheeks, you can see uh, high cheekbones, low cheekbones, concave, convex, round, and gaunt, and uh, so forth. So on one hand, you have an extreme degree of uh, customization that is, uh, that is uh, possible when, when, you, when you look at this. And uh, you can begin to see uh, just the array of types of characters that, that uh, people can uh, create with this. So on one hand, I think it's an exemplary system in the sense that you have uh, graphically a lot of different kinds of possibilities. People have been interested in the kind of open world uh, structure of the game and, uh, and uh, so forth. And you have all of these different sort of stats that represent your abilities, much like a lot of computational uh, role-playing games. But at the same time, there's another side to it where social biases are embedded within these uh, designs. So for example, uh, for a certain uh, races here, the Argonians and Orcs, if you happen to be female, you're going to be 10 points more intelligent by default than your male uh, counterpart. And then also uh, uh, racially, that when we begin to find some differences. So if you are the ostensibly uh, Norwegian uh, Nord or the ostensibly uh, uh, African uh, Red Guard, then you'll have by default 20 po points less intelligence than, than the ostensibly uh, French uh, Breton within the game. Now, so this is something that uh, I've been talking about for a while. I want to get, keep everybody, uh, get everybody up to speed here before going on. But the question that I've had more recently is, uh, could we automatically discover uh, uh, you know, these types of develop, uh, developer in, uh, in embedded biases? And so what we've been doing is, uh, and so this is work in conjunction with uh, PhD student uh, Chong Yu Lim, who is here. And I should mention that uh, he just successfully defended his PhD uh, dissertation. So congrats to, uh, to uh, Chong Yu. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so in this, in this work, now then we've been using this kind of clustering algorithms. You know, so this is a kind of uh, AI approach. And we've used a number of them, but I'll talk mostly about one today. 
And so a lot of you might be familiar with clustering algorithms, but basically they take a lot of data, cluster it into different, uh, into different categories based upon shared characteristics. Uh, and uh, in an unsupervised, uh, unsupervised uh, learning system, then uh, we're finding uh, statistical patterns that just emerge from, from the data rather than giving it uh, training examples. So what we've been using here is a different algorithm, which is called archetypal analysis, that works in a way that's uh, uh, different than a lot, of the, a lot of the clustering algorithms that you might be familiar with, because rather than finding groups of shared uh, of, uh, uh, of instances with shared features, what it does is compute uh, uh, convex hull around uh, each of these different instances. So what that means is it finds sort of extremes that can encapsulate you know, each of these different items. So it's used in sports analytics and this sort of thing to make it concrete and uh, timely we could say, imagine sports competition like, like the National Basketball Association where you have one type might be a superstar who's good at everything like uh, uh, Stephen Curry and then you might have somebody else that's a bench warmer that's you know, not really good at anything and somebody that's just good at defense. And then everybody that's in between you can look at as some percentage combination of those. You know, like Kevin Durant is a really good player almost as good as LeBron and you know, maybe a little more set defense. And so you can actually describe every instance in a very accessible kind of way. You know, that is just some percentage combination of these sort of extremes that you find here. And there's an advantage to this too because uh, actually in cognitive science uh, theory, uh, Eleanor Rush, George Lakoff, and others have shown that we actually think in terms of prototypes out there in, in, in the world. And so this algorithm is much more like the type of, uh, uh, the type of cognitive process that we actually use to categorize in, 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 in the wild and cognitively. And so you know, just to give you another kind of illustrative uh, example uh, here, and, and you can thank uh, uh, Chang Yu for, uh, for, uh, for this particular, I, I speak a lot about, I use birds as an example because Eleanor Roche talks about uh, uh, the prototypical bird being a robin, but uh, Chang Yu went a little bit uh, further here and suggests that you might think about some extremal type of bird, a parrot, which is one that uh, talks. Another one could be something like a penguin that doesn't even fly, it just uh, swims. And another one might even not be a real bird, but something like this, which is just a very angry kind of bird that you play games with. Right, and so when you have a, a kind of character like a, this, do people know who this character is? Right? Yeah, so this is a superhero, the penguin. And, uh, and so actually he's somebody that would be right in the middle. He has characteristics of each of these. He's sort of angry, he's a villain. And he can speak, uh, he's a human, and he is a penguin too. That, that's his namesake. Right, and, and so that just gives you a sense of you know, the way we might think about this with uh, archetypal analysis. And when we then, if you think about this in terms of the Elder Scrolls game in Oblivion, then the archetypes that we actually found when processing all the data for race, gender, and all of these stats, then we ended up actually finding three archetypes. And this is not you know, sort of our understanding of how people play. You know, these are statistically how the stats are distributed to reveal sort of three extremal types. And so one of those uh, that, that's embedded in the system is the kind of intelligence-oriented type or the kind of magic user. Another one is a strength-oriented type, the kind of fighting type. Another one is a stealth-oriented type, a thief. So it sort of makes sense that the stats distribute in this way because that's a standard kind of uh, triumvirate within, within, within games. But when you begin to plot uh, here, you know, you know, these are all the points for the default stats for according to race and gender. And so the red being a male, black being female. And this is called a... a ternary plot diagram, then you can begin to, to see a few sort of interesting phenomena observe, uh, 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 emerge. For example, you see that uh, this type, you know, this intelligence-oriented type and this strength-oriented type uh, here are both red, you know, that's a male. You know, so if you're going to play in any of those types, you're only going to be optimized by default if you play as a male character. 
Right. And if you want to, uh, and also you can see the Nords and Red Guard that I mentioned uh, here are almost entirely defined in terms of strength. So if you happen to be a Norwegian character or an African character within the game, you have actually no initial characteristics of an intelligence-oriented type within, within the game. And so I think this is interesting because uh, this, again, uh, it emerges just strictly through looking at the kind of data. It's a kind of approach we could use, say, for you know, big data analyses of games and, uh, and so forth. And it's uh, quite uh, uh, telling when you and a different type. It's different type of analysis than just saying that you have lower stats to begin with, because you're actually saying that females are not considered the prime examples of particular, very popular and fundamental ways of playing the game. And similarly, if you happen to be, uh, let's say, the Nord or, or the Red Guard, then you're only associated with stereotypically physical attributes within it, and so actually no uh, wisdom or intelligence and, 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 and so forth. And so again, that's using AI to make a kind of subjective uh, uh, argument about some of the cultural values or the phantasms, we could say, that are embedded within uh, the kind of virtual characters that are here. And we've also done another type of study. And so I think of that study as a kind of in the wild study, you know, that means we take some system that's already out there and we do our analysis of it. But we also thought we could create an experimental setting and uh, through our own experimental setting begin to try to understand uh, in a controlled sense what are some of the values that are exhibited by users. And so uh, there's a, a system built uh, that was built in, in, in the lab uh, that is called uh, the Airvitar system. And so this is one you can customize character. It's not restricted to this 32-bit style uh, uh, characters. Uh, uh, we have a version that's adapted for Nintendo Miis and, and other versions. But the idea is that as people customize, we're collecting fine-grained data about the customization, not just screen capturing, but how long they spend looking at which uh, angle of their character from the front view, side view, back view, how long they spend on the arms, the hair, the face, the skin tone. So we actually collect all that kind of fine-grained data as people construct their, their characters. And not just visual data, but also data about their attributes. People can also add tags to describe their characters, write flat text descriptions, and we can do text analysis, natural language processing, sentiment analysis, and so forth. So we can actually process a lot of this fine-grained data that emerges in this experimental setting. So I'll tell you just about uh, uh, some uh, uh, low-hanging fruit that emerged from one, one, just one of these studies. And so this is one we're looking at uh, stats. You know, this is 191 participants. Uh, that's 43% uh, female, 54% uh, male, and 3% identified as uh, other here. And so you see, you see the, the, the general uh, uh, demographic uh, uh, statistics here. And what was interesting here is that uh, you know, so we had people create these different characters and look at what are the kind of patterns that emerge. And again, this is user biases, you know, not just uh, not the developer biases that are embedded in the systems. And we actually did find different patterns of values between males and female uh, uh, players. And so in this case, you, know, you can see that uh, you, know, you can have, say, male players that construct either male or female avatars with, within the game. And uh, you see that uh, uh, the sort of dis distribution of uh, relative stats here. Uh, let's say high dexterity uh, uh, and a little bit more uh, high dexterity for females than for males, but actually the strength uh, is, uh, and uh, endurance and so forth are within the, you know, the mar uh, uh, margin of error. You know, so you can see uh, basically that there's similar kind of stats you know, that were uh, for, for each uh, gendered avatar. Right, and I think the most extreme one that we, that we find uh, here in terms of difference is uh, endurance. Right, along with, uh, with uh, uh, charisma, where, where females are given higher. 
Now, if we compare what the female players did uh, uh, with this, it's actually quite a different distribution. And so you begin to see that uh, when females created female characters, they gave them well, a lot higher intelligence than they gave their male avatars. They gave them a lot higher charisma than they gave their male avatars, and way higher wisdom than they gave their uh, male, male avatars. But uh, they also gave the male char characters much higher strength, much higher endurance, much higher dexterity. So in some sense, this plays out a, a kind of a, 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 a gender stereotype, which isn't to say that, uh, that the female players are, uh, are stereotyping uh, uh, more, but uh, in, uh, in general, or to, or to suppose why this could be the case. But I think it is quite interesting and uh, telling just to, just to compare, because also there are differences here, for example, that the male uh, players, uh, for them, you see wisdom just wasn't important at all, sort of across the board uh, here. Uh, and, and so, uh, uh, but, but at the same time, we can begin to see that uh, actually the, value, uh, the values that are embedded in uh, or enacted by users are actually uh, uh, quite different. And we can begin to see what some of these kind of values are through the kind of things that people do as they customize their, their uh, characters. Uh, so to summarize you know, some of the, the sort of things that we're, that we're talking about here, uh, that's uh, you know, just the idea that AI can reveal biases that are embedded within uh, systems, as well as biases that are enacted by, uh, by uh, users of these systems. And, and finally, that these types of biases are often considered subjective and cultural, not phenomena that can be studied using AI. Now, of course, we also would want to do some kind of qualitative studies because you might want to understand why people actually have these kind of differences. And, uh, and those biases could be historical. It could be based on uh, sort of game mechanics. Uh, uh, for example, uh, uh, what are the kind of characters that are traditionally affected within games? What's the history of stats that are typically useful? And, and, and so forth. But I think it's still telling just to notice even these kind of patterns. And then using AI, we've also found further patterns, for example, Categories of users that focus on customizing face, focus on customizing body, patterns uh, uh, focused on sort of gender bending and, and so forth. And again, all these are kind of user values that can emerge from, from the data. So now I want to shift to sort of the other half of our, of our work, which is about virtual identity system design. You know, so that's, uh, that, that's actually building our, our own systems that uh, do things a bit differently than some of these, some of these other kind of systems I mentioned. And so it's the idea that we must develop systems for virtual identity that are much more socially and culturally nuanced than the ones I just mentioned. And in particular, what I mean by that is that these systems, they generally categorize people in very sort of top-down ways that are not, uh, not necessarily dynamic in all cases. And that means if you designate somebody as your friend, then uh, there's no Facebook status for fluctuating frenemy you know, that uh, sort of changes over time at different points. There's not always categories for uh, becoming an expert, you know, categories in transition and so forth. And so there are a lot of ways that sort of the dynamics of identity aren't represented. And so I guess we're moving beyond the fact that we must uh, design virtual identities with uh, more cultural nuance and uh, onto the idea that we actually can begin to, to do this. And so I'll mention one platform called the Chimera platform. And I'll start with a demonstration of a, of a game demo that's built using it, and then explain to you a little bit more about what went, went into the system. Uh, so this is a, it's a game scenario called Gatekeeper that was produced for several reasons. Now, one is because we wanted to show variable dialogue within a game based upon your current social identity that is you start off as one type of character, but you can act as if another type of character and, it's, and it dynamically responds and generates dialogue based on this. Uh, it also is, uh, uh, is meant to be a, a kind of 
uh, social metaphor for this idea of gatekeeping. And so the idea that, uh, for example, some might want to change their behavior in some cases in, uh, say, a job interview when, uh, when in a position with somebody of authority or power, you know, the idea of leaning in. You know, so basically trying to change the way that your identity performance is read by somebody else in order to uh, achieve something or get in. You know, so it's a, it's a kind of metaphor for these experiences, but through a typical kind of fantasy uh, scenario. So in this case, we have uh, sylvans and uh, brushwoods, which are roughly elves and uh, hobbits uh, in, in this virtual domain. Uh, and, uh, but again, you could think about it you know, as, as uh, a metaphor for other types of uh, categories, but they've been at war for ages. The sylvan are known as uh, tall people on average and are sometimes judged from afar to be lo lovers of finery and elaborate poetry. The brushwoods are known as a small people on average and sometimes judged from afar to be fond of earthy homespun fabrics and good harp tales. So remember, you are a, a sylvan, and also, I mean, this is quite uh, variable. You know, so in our system, they could have looked like like anything. You can just uh, see, uh, um, well, but and you stand before the gate of a keep. You need to get into this, uh, get into this uh, 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 keep, and the need is dire. You're tall, wearing fine clothes, and articulate, and you see a brushwood guard with sturdy armor who is just there on the screen. He looks preoccupied. So, what would you like to do uh, uh, here? Would you like to dust off your boots? Would you like to adjust your clothes in your uh, gilded mirror? Would you like to untuck your tunic or hide your fine jewelry? Hide your fine jewelry. Uh, okay, so we'll hide our uh, fine jewelry. Right. And he does uh, like this, and that you're a little less uh, fancy in, in front of him. And you think to yourself, I'm trying to fit in with these uh, brushwoods. So the guard looks curious now. And you see his default facial expression. He's a little bit jollier than he was just, just, um, just a moment ago. That's giving you some kind of uh, feedback. So he looks expectantly at you. Do you speak in your own language to say pleasant day to you? Do you say some weather we're having today, good day, or I hope you are faring well, a star shines upon the hour of our meeting? So what would you like here? Some weather we're having today. Okay. And so he approves of this also. And you think I'm trying to fit in with these brushwoods. The guard has a wary expression, and he says, we don't see many, many new folk around here. Uh, did you travel far to get here? And it seemed like he was about to say, we don't see many Sylvan uh, around here. So you do say, tis not far from home. Oh yes, good man, this is a strange land to me. New, I'm from just around the way. Uh, or do you say, I'm from a little ways off indeed. Oh yes, good man, this is a strange <laughs> land to me. Okay, we say it, and exactly in that accent. Frowns disapprovingly, actually doesn't, doesn't like, like uh, this. And you think, I think he'll still let me in, though maybe I didn't give him the response he was looking for. He's curious. Again, you speak in his own language and call him small one. Hello, greetings, brother, or good day, Rushwood. Okay, you're too slow, so we're going to call him small one here. <laughs> right, and he doesn't uh, like this. And so it seems like he doesn't want us in. And actually, he says, I won't let you in for your own safety, though, is, is, is the reason. And you think to yourself, I wasn't sure if I was trying to fit in or to be myself. He'd never let a Sylvan in here. Maybe I didn't want to go inside after all, but it would be nice. I don't know. And so actually you were sort of going back and forth between trying to fit in to get in and not. So we got this kind of, this, this kind of ending. And, and I'll, I'll just mention to you that if I go through this one more time, and I, I won't ask you to give input, no, but there actually is a kind of narrative structure that starts with sort of entrance clause, we have motivation clause, it's based on the sociolinguistic model of narratives of personal experience, and that means something to anybody from linguistics here, but basically the way we tell stories about our own lives. 
and we have different outcomes where we're testing our membership in his category, that's sort of the group that's accepted, and based on the trajectory of our membership, then we're getting different kind of results. So this is just the first stage. Our membership in the category is decreasing, and so that's influencing the kind of result that we're getting. So it's not just the immediate action, but the history of actions that's changing what, what's, uh, what, what's happening here. And to explain a little bit more about what's going on here under the scenes, now basically Chimera implements uh, uh, AI engine for identity gradients, you know, category gradients and category dynamics. And what I mean by that is this idea that, you know, say imagine you're playing a game and you start off as one type, you know, say a physically oriented fighting type. Then you begin to dabble a little bit in magic and so you see this character has a sword as well as a magic cloak uh, here. Looks like they could uh, do some of both. Then you decide to go back to pure physicality and uh, fighting and then you go, uh, as they uh, tend to say, uh, full mage by the end, right? Now imagine if you're listening to Spotify or you're one of the, the smaller number of people that's out there listening to Tidal or one of these other kind of, kind of musical streaming sites and you listen to, a hard, to a hardcore UK punk rock music, you begin to dabble a little bit in uh, bebop music, you go back to listening to UK punk rock and then go full jazz. Well, what kind of models is the similar structure between each of these? The kind of fluctuating membership, you know, be, be, between, being between sort of more extremal categories and partial membership in multiple categories. And actually, it doesn't just have to be two. It can be any number of, of categories and degrees of membership. And so the example that you saw did just implement two categories, but it could have been others. You know, and also, they could have been represented differently. So it separates out the model from, on the back end of data from the visual representation, you know, Brushwood and Sylvan's could have been represented sort of as anything uh, graphically within the system. And uh, I should also say we separate out the abstract categories, that means the hierarchy, what is accepted and uh, uh, what is stigmatized from the particular categories. That means you could run it again and instantiate it where instead of Sylvan being stigmatized, the brushwoods are, and, and so forth. And so it actually is automating a lot, a lot of what these kind of systems uh, do. And so you, know, you could have a number of features that are represented, such as Plan, height, clothing, speaking, and, and so forth. And you could have then begin to represent prototypes or stereotypes within the system. You know, what is a prototypical Sylvan or the prototypical Brushwood? And then maybe more interestingly, also begin to look at other types of representation, such as the well-dressed, eloquent Brushwood. You know, that might even model phenomena. It can be used to model phenomena such as passing as a member of a different category. And we're also looking at these kind of trajectories. You know, so in this case. Uh, it's a little bit washed out, but the clothing and speaking ability is low, gets higher, a little higher and higher. So if you actually change the way you dress, the way that you speak over the course of the experience, then we can begin to look at the trajectory of that in order to respond and uh, actually use that to model a number of different kind of phenomena, you know, such as you know, model, let's say, this disclosure of, of, of your identity or uh, disidentifying, that's something like putting on glasses to seem as if you're more literate and, and so forth. We can begin to model these kind of phenomena to make a more expressive kind of game playing experience and have different outcomes based on these trajectories. So for example, when you did it just now, we had a kind of uh, a fluctuating trajectory. And in fact, yours is a fluctuating trajectory where you didn't pass the threshold <coughs> to be accepted. And so we could have had any number of different types of trajectory that uh, can inf influence the outcome. And in this case, there are a number of different kind of endings. So for example, where you get in or don't get in, but uh, just to give you a couple of examples, uh, and these actually have sort of thematic associations. So you could have been accepted and uh, gotten in and just thought something like, 
thanks, I was able to convince the guard to let me in. Now, you could have also done something uh, such as done everything to be accepted, and then I uh, got an internal theme, which is, well, I got in, but I had to pretend to be something I'm not. And so you can actually begin to model uh, the, you know, this kind of uh, you know, more kind of subjective experiences and cultural phenomena. There's also stigma allure. That's this idea that you act entirely like a Sylvan uh, uh, stereotype the whole time. And you actually surprisingly get in, but it says the guard let me in, but seemed more dazzled by my race than anything else. And so you actually have this range of different kinds of, uh, of uh, possibility uh, for outcomes in, in the end. And we've also done uh, other kind of uh, 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 narratives you know, that take place not in game-like settings, uh, but uh, uh, narratives. I'll just show you just only very briefly what, what, th what this looks like. Uh, and so this is one that categorizes you as a member of a certain musical group and tells a narrative about the changing group membership in terms of your musical fandom. And you could log in through Facebook and use your real likes, but we won't uh, do that today. So we'll call ourselves uh, April here. And so we'll categorize, you know, so the point of the system isn't the categorization that's going to take place here, it's a narrative about your movement between categories, but first we'll categorize you. Give me three artists that you like to figure out what your musical category is. So what's some musical artist that, that you like? Beyonce. Oh, yeah, so let's have a little lemonade. <laughs> All right, yeah, so, uh, uh, okay, what's, uh, what's another artist that somebody likes? Justin uh, Okay, that, yeah, that's a, a perennial favorite. <laughs> right. Okay, and, and, and one more. Prince. Uh, oh, uh, well, I think we should take a moment of silence uh, seriously before going on to this. And uh, now I'll enter, enter the name of uh, uh, Prince here. Right, so it's calculating our musical category, and we're represented not as an avatar, but through our photo wall uh, um, here. And, uh, and I guess appropriately, you know, that our name is April, I mean, Prince died in April, and his famous song is Sometimes It Snows in April, which indeed turned out to be the case uh, in, in, in this month. Yeah, so we, we, we've uh, calculated yeah, yeah, these uh, set of musical categories, and, and here you can begin to see uh, that uh, you have somebody who likes bop uh, vocals, that's sort of very different that, than what we like. We suggest you know, some type of music that you might want to hear. This is uh, Tony Parker said, you know, suggest this. All right, that's uh, enough of it. And uh, that music is so wonderfully uh, ironic. This is data-driven in terms of how it's describing these. Please tell me you like that Vox Office song. Did you like it or not? No way. Okay, so no. Um, all right, yeah, so why don't you leave your comfort zone and listen to actually Bapa vocals uh, once in a while. But then somebody who likes dance pop, like you did, <laughs> suggests that you might like listening to George Michael. He makes great, sexy music. And again, this is data-driven. Right? This, data you know, this is going out to the All Music Guide and finding the themes and, and moods associated with that singer and uh, suggesting you listen to George Michael. All right. Like or just, okay, like. that was a quick like. Right. But actually, it's embarrassing, says the Bob vocal fan, how much you like this kind of uh, dance pop uh, music. Right. And so it actually tells a, a narrative about our shifting membership, you know, that's sort of reinforcing our membership as one type of fan or another through these kind of bots in the social media, uh, in social media setting uh, here. It's online. You can, you can play through it more on your own.
Right, and, and so, yeah, so that's, this just, that's just one example, again, of this is a platform we built to build these kind of systems. It's not these one-off experiences, you know, but building a platform to build this kind of more nuanced models of, cult, uh, of uh, cultural identity, social identity into these systems. And I'll just conclude with uh, this. That's what's cooking now. What's on the pot in the, uh, in the ice lab and uh, in terms of both analysis and, and, and design. And so we've done, uh, so there's some work that's international studies of virtual identity uh, using uh, the Persian Gulf, Gulf region as a case study with, with uh, collaborator Sarah Buig at Qatar uh, Computing Research Institute in, in the Middle East. We've been doing work with uh, local public schools, looking how virtual identities can support diverse learner, uh, uh, diverse learners as learners and doers of computer science. And so this is work with PhD student uh, Dominic Cow, uh, who is here, as, as, as well as uh, others in, in, in the lab. Uh, 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 Maya Wagner has also been, been uh, in, involved in Europe, and uh, Pablo also is, is a new, new student uh, here. And then finally, a virtual identity system against war, uh, a virtual reality system. Uh, and th this is one that's a collaboration with a visiting artist, Karim Ben Khalifa, that I've uh, written a grant to host this year. Previously, he was in the Open Documentary Lab that uh, hosted him at, at, at MIT and where I became introduced to his work. So I'll just conclude with these. So in terms of the international studies of identity, it's the idea that these types of systems aren't always designed with diverse cultures uh, uh, in mind. And even in cases where they are, they don't quite always Fit. You know, so this is, you know, so this is a, a, a famous uh, character from, uh, from uh, a fighting game Tekken 7, you know, but, uh, yeah, but actually his style is not actually what people tend to wear in, in that region, you know, like sort of uh, blue jeans with your thobe, which is uh, you know, the, 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 this headscarf garment. And, and similarly, this is Fash Squad uh, Cotter, you know, it's based in the region, but if you actually look at the kind of people that are represented uh, in the images, they don't necessarily represent uh, that, 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 that region. So we've been uh, trying to find some base principles and best practices for virtual identity systems in the region, new computational techniques for discovering values, again, as I mentioned, and new applications. So basically, it's this issue of when we look at these identities that are blends of their virtual and real identities, how can we learn more about the kind of values that take place in that middle setting, in that middle space? How can we find patterns and develop new, new technologies? And even a work, let's say, with archetypal analysis you know, finding what are the typical ways, and these are actually real research uh, uh, findings uh, here, the typical types of avatars that people have, this is based on 45,000 Instagram profiles that we process. And so uh, for uh, uh, males you know, sort of, you know, representing themselves in traditional garb, a lot of Arabic text uh, representations and also more cartoony text, rep uh, cartoony representations, especially for female users because uh, uh, just with the social values that tend not to represent themselves in terms of how they physically look but use uh, surrogate uh, images. And actually wrote, created an interface for uh, doing these kind of uh, doing these kind of analyses and finding different archetypes that uh, you know, that can you know, that, that can emerge. Each row representing sort of one archetype of uh, imagery. We've also been doing public school workshops. So, and so actually, what you have the students do is write small computer programs to do exactly uh, this and maybe get to the to the solution uh, of, of a graph. And they have, and so this is. Uh, Mazzy game that that uh, uh, that, uh, that we also use to study the impact of different types of avatar uh, on students' performance and engagement. And if they have one that looks like them versus a geometrical shape or a role model avatar and so forth. So there's just been a number of uh, studies that's uh, in particular feeding into Dominic's uh, uh, dissertation work within the lab. And then we're taking this to run uh, workshops with uh, students. And so we've actually run workshop for students 
from, from uh, the local community going into schools and, and so forth. And I won't say that much about it now. I'll just say that uh, the students, well, they liked it in, in, in general. <laughs> and then I'll, I'll end just with some of the recent work on this collaboration. This is Karim Ben Khalifa's project. He's the director and uh, become the uh, human-computer interaction producer on it. This is a virtual reality system uh, that is to engender empathy in the face of war puts you into dialogue uh, and, and basically a kind of journalistic project. You hear from people on two sides of war, say, you know, say an Israeli combatant, a Palestinian combatant, and you hear them answer basic questions, basic human questions like, why do you fight? Who is your enemy? Have you killed? And, and, and so on. And through the kind of parallel, the idea is that, that it sort of humanizes and helps us you to see you know, what are the kind of the basic human factors in, in the face of war. And so I'll just show a trailer about this just so you get a sense of it. Uh, uh, you know, before, before giving you my final remarks here. This project was born out of frustration as a fellow journalist. I have covered conflicts for the last 15 years, and I knew I could not just do the same when I became a father. Yet, I was not down with trying to understand wars. My friend in Israel, when they know I'm heading for Gaza, cannot help themselves but to wish me luck and to stay safe. They believe a lot of people in Gaza are irrational. But also when I spend weeks in Gaza working and I'm about to return to Israel, my Palestinian friends are telling me exactly the same. Just be careful there. So there is a bigger story than the war itself, and perhaps this is the one I need to explore and share. This project is rooted in my experience going from one side to the other in many different wars and conflicts, finding that people's dreams hopes and nightmares are often more similar than they are different. Who's your enemy? For the audience to understand and feel that, we will use artificial intelligence, cognitive science, and the latest technologies in virtual realities. Here is the concept. The Oculus Rift is a virtual reality headset. It blocks your vision and places you in a virtual world that we are creating. Fox Harrell, a professor, and Emil Bruno, a researcher, both from the MIT, will provide the analytical backbone. When the audience walks in between enemies, we will measure bias and how it physiologically responds to the installation. And in using neuroscience research, we could be able to discover how much empathy has been created. I am planning to bring the fighters of seven other long-standing conflicts together. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop it right here for right now, but what I want to explain is just that uh, with what we're contributing to the system is actually a model somewhat like the Chimera system, but in this case we're looking at through your nervousness and your bias with each of, with each of the combatants, and actually changing some of the outcomes of the story, the way that it's presented uh, in, in terms of, say, lighting effects, but even doing things that we're, we're exploring that you can become one of the, say, you can become the person that you're least comfortable with, the one that is most your enemy, uh, based on this idea that if you are in the circumstances of the other, that actually you could be uh, the enemy in, in this case. So it's bringing in this kind of narrative trajectory and this kind of identity trajectory into the system to enhance the kind of virtual reality experience and, and, and adaptive nature of the system.
And it's actually, you know, the, uh, Kareem just got back from East Congo, collected all the footage uh, there, and so the system is underway, and we'll be here next, uh, next week, and we'll be speaking about the system at, at, at a VR conference here at MIT. And so in, in conclusion, uh, 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 towards the conclusion, uh, that uh, I've, again, I've been presenting a new approach to understanding or revealing values built into virtual identity systems, whether it's uh, values around issues of uh, uh, war in, in educational systems, uh, uh, in, in course, you know, social issues such as uh, racism or sexism and, and so forth. And then uh, again, looking at these very subjective, qualitative, cultural issues using AI, uh, whether for analysis or for, or for design. And the idea is that we can actually use computing to better understand cultural values such as biases that are implemented through these types of virtual identities. And we can creatively use virtual identities to help users and developers become more critically aware of social identity phenomena. Thank you. So happy to take, to take any questions that you might have. Uh, yes. Uh, hi, I'm curious about the uh, the design process for Canaria. Like, what does it look like taking a um, kind of uh, basic critique and then thinking about how to design around that to, to get at it um, to then do kind of critique-based, design-based critique? All right, well, so uh, when so the seeds of the, of the Chimera system were actually in the initial NSF grant that, that, that I mentioned a long time ago, which was basically this idea that uh, when we look at our computational identity systems, uh, that because identity is usually, usually people just look at one particular kind of you know, software, or you know, say look at characters, or even a lot of the old critiques, or say uh, even something like the body type of a particular character like Laura Croft and, and this sort of thing. And so instead I was thinking about, well, what happens when you take you know, all that we have in the real physical world, and actually that's where the advance comes from, it's the fact that in the physical world we have all this kind of nuance for changing our, our, our fashion, our discourse, our body language, and so forth, and then these systems, our identity is mitigated through these kind of computational data structures, and, and in fact, I, I can show you the way, the way that I think about this, that there's actually a set number of these kind of uh, data structures through which our identities are staged. Yeah, that's whether you're in the social networking profile, an avatar, or online account, then your identity is mitigated through static media assets, black text profiles, you know, that sort of textual descriptions. You might have just image files, modular graphics, like the kind of avatars that I mentioned, your stats of your characters, the data structures that annotate your character, and certain kind of rules that if you act in a certain way long enough in oblivion at the beginning, it suggests for you, say, that you might like to play as a wizard or this sort of thing. Or in your social media profile, you listen to a lot of certain type of music, then your feed will automatically suggest to you, well, you might like this movie, you know, this sort of thing. That's what I mean by behavioral or rules. And so in some way, actually, there are some similarities across all of these. It suggests that there can be ways that we can begin to analyze them and even look at reciprocities between them that says, can we say anything about your performance in the virtual world from your social networking profile. And, and so that was one starting point, was to say that, when we, that we're not looking at everything that's our identity from the real world, we're looking at what's built into these systems. And the other thing is that most of these systems categorize people in, in a very top-down way. We can actually look at the structures that we use to categorize that's uh, not nearly as sort of fluid as categories in the real world. And so starting from that point, what we did was to begin to build systems that could have a more flexible model of categorization. That's with radiance, with dynamics that change over time. And then ask the question, what happens if we take that model and then put it into these systems? 
And so sometimes people ask, well, aren't you just putting in your own ideology, you know, kind of you know, anti-bias ideology? Actually, you could use this kind of system to create a kind of dystopian game. I always give the example that you could build Grand Theft Auto that has racial profiling built into it that could be sort of interesting as an expressive tool using this kind of system. So that means you could actually increase the expressive range for, say, social commentary or critique. You could also model particular kind of social uh, theories. You could say, I'm writing a system that, that is based on the theory of gender performativity, where the way you perform your gender constitutes the way that you're seen. Then you could also build a different model that's saying, this is a biological positivist view of gender, where based on a, a sort of certain ingrained characteristics, then that's the gender you are, and then contrast those. You know, so actually, the system is just a, a flexible platform that you can then, on top of that, build in sort of different models of, uh, let's say, identity theory or, or, or experiences. So that's sort of the way that we approach it in the lab, is to think about you know, how can we begin to build these kind of platforms that can actually increase the expressive range of the types of systems you can, can produce and then separate out that platform building from the particular works that I think that then those works might comment on, on particular uh, theory. So we might have, we have a game that's uh, looking at uh, racial microaggressions or everyday covert discrimination in that game, but the platform isn't limited just to, to taking on that, that kind of issue. And then again, through platform building, that also means we can get students, PhD students or computer science students involved that might want to work on, on uh, sort of technical underpinnings in AI, uh, sort of, uh, students that have multiple skill sets that can work on that level, but also in storytelling, we have uh, yeah, designers that might want to work on it. And so then we'll sort of collectively, also I teach a course every semester called Advanced Identity Representation that's repeatable for credit, different uh, readings every semester, and get people involved in the kind of ongoing process of using these platforms for critical uh, cultural engagement. Uh, yes. Uh, I wanted to ask them about um, really organizational psychology or maybe individual psychology questions because it seems, I mean, one of the amusing things is to see, you know, that, that somehow people, you know, put in these racialized models of, you know, in a fantasy world representing um, uh, ethnicities of people, you know, that, that, we, that we know, that we see as French, you know, or African and things like this. And then somehow, like, also, they're like, well, you know, of course, we need a variety of different like ability skills. So, you know, if, if the if if our African race is like, you know, like lower in intelligence, then well, we need that for you know, so that people can choose different things, right? Um, but <clears throat> people, it doesn't seem they put the pieces together about the implications. I mean, it seems like being being shown this this uh, you know on a chart would probably be a little bit uncomfortable and and, and perhaps like a. a you know, difficult for the for the creators of, of, of Libya to, to talk about, right? Right, as I encountered that at the Game Developers Conference yes, <laughs> one, yes. one time. You know, speaking of oblivion, right? Um, but, so I'm just wondering, and the other thing I'm thinking about, which is, I, I think related to this issue is like Microsoft's K, you know, the, the idea of like creating this artificial intelligence system that is supposed to represent a millennial and finding that after, you know, being online for a few hours and, you know, learning from from the uh, the population of the internet at large, it begins to embrace Hitler and you know and, and, and uh, you know endorse all these other types of uh, uh, behaviors. You know, as if people you know people didn't say that on the internet, as if as if this wouldn't be picked up. But so I, I'm wondering about this type of like corporate oblivion. You know, like how is it that the people developing these these systems like don't sort of put the pieces together in, in, a, in a way that seems obvious when you present it? You know? Uh, right. Well, so I, th I think I think a couple of uh, there are a couple of reasons for it, uh, and uh, I mean, uh, and yeah, and uh, like you mentioned, 
that you know, I present the work in different ways in different venues. So I've spoken at the Game Developers Conference and she had a number of the developers of Elder Scrolls Online in the audience, you know, then, and some were receptive. And right? afterwards they thought, you know, what can we do differently? And also a lot of the times you know, they, will make, they will say something like Ubisoft sort of famously said, we don't have the resources to create a female character within this uh, ga gaming uh, ex experience. And I think uh, uh, sort of the anecdote is, is that uh, you know, but there's you know, like almost this one-to-one -one representation of a cathedral within within, within this game, yeah. right? uh, but uh, no, no female character model. But at the same time, you know, it's also this you know, to be sensitive that it's not something that's always but willful, or it's always only coming from one particular group towards other groups. And so I think a lot of it takes place actually like the child that you saw at the beginning from the Kenneth and Mamie Clark study, that we're all immersed within these kind of worldviews. You know, sort of regardless of, of the background, you might have sort of different experiences based upon your particular background, you know, but you know, these kind of cultural phantasms that are shared are out there. And so in the same way that the kid is, is painted, pointing towards the one uh, uh, baby doll, you know, the lighter colored you know, baby doll uh, uh, there, you know, uh, without really thinking about it, I think a lot of the same sort of process takes place uh, here. And so one part of it is I always suggest you know, that uh, we should be explicit in, about some of the kind of cultural assumptions we're going into into these uh, systems rather than leaving them uh, implicit. And so, you know, that, that's uh, one, one of these kind of approaches. And the other thing I, I also often do is just uh, say that it's it's actually to increase the expressive range of these kind of games for uh, you know, for anyone in game developers. It's not that every single game should have every option for everybody, but actually that uh, that. You know, rather, you could have systems that could that could model social experiences and phenomena with more nuance and make it easier for people. Because I mean, there are examples, like the game Dragon Age has discrimination against elves built into it, but it's all hard-coded within the dialogue tree. Right? That's exponential growth in terms of the assets you have to create. Whereas if you use a system like Chimera, then it's a little bit more effort on the front end, but you could just change different cities and have different parameters for who's accepted and who isn't in a, in a quite automated way. So it actually makes it more expressive and, and more fruitful and feasible for, for developers. So I think making that argument as well as, as well as helping people understand that it's not just the individual kind of discrimination, but it's these kind of cultural values or phantasms that we're all immersed in. And then also that, there, like you say, there are conventions that come from history of gaming, like Dungeons and Dragons conventions and, and so forth. And then let's look at how they combine. You know, it's one thing to have a critique of Tolkien where you say that elves are a stand-in for a certain ethnic type in a metaphorical way, and another one where you have you know, not just non-human types, but actual human types that represent real ethnic groups that are, that are standing in. It's similar, but a little, but a little bit uh, uh, different there. But I think just helping people to become aware that this is something that's useful for everybody. It's not, you know, just a, you know, that's not just a sort of diversity training tool, but it's actually a tool to make the media more expressive. I, I think that tends to help with speaking to game developers. Yes. Uh, I guess you. Oh, okay. Right. So, hi, I'm hi. Joy. I am really inspired by your work, and I wanted to ask you about what you're doing with broadening participation in terms of virtual identity construction, such that um, there's a greater sense of a self-image as a computer scientist. Um, so I was wondering, how are you measuring that development of self-image for that work? Uh, right. Well, yeah, so thanks for for asking about that, and, and yeah, we've done a lot, a lot. Yeah, so. We have a new NSF uh, project. It's a STEM plus uh, computing uh, grant. And so this is some uh, uh, work, like I mentioned, with a number of the students in, in uh, lab. And so you know, Dominic and I, you know, this is, uh, and so you know, this is what's uh, you know, developing into his uh, dissertation work. But you know, so far it's done a number of kind of, of crowdsourced studies you know, that are looking at 
how different avatar types influence uh, people's performance and engagement with, within games. And if you're familiar even with the idea uh, in, uh, of, uh, say, Claude Steele is his famous notion of stereotype threat, that people basically perform the stereotypes if you ask about gender before, uh, even just a question before they're giving, uh, a, say, a, a math test, uh, uh, then a lot of times the female uh, uh, test takers will perform worse just by checking the box for female. And actually, people can also perform up to stereotypes uh, too. And so there was actually a study that was also, that, that was also done along these lines with uh, the Asian female students and having, uh, checking the box for ethnicity actually performed better uh, on, uh, on, on these tests. But it's not something conscious. It's something that takes place at a subconscious level. And so we've been just asking questions because so many learning systems use some type of representation of you uh, uh, these days. Uh, then what happens if you use, say, an avatar that looks like you versus you know, one that's very generic? Do you perform better? Do you perform worse? Uh, does it trigger stereotype threat and so on? And actually has some interesting and surprising kind, kind of uh, uh, results. And so I'll just uh, skip to, uh, to, to some, of the, some of the results here. Right, and, and so for example, you know, if, you know, and, we all, and also one of the ways to mitigate against stereotype threat is say use, using uh, role models. We're also doing things like if when they're doing well, they have one that looks like them, and when they're not doing well, they have one that just looks like a geometrical shape. Does that, that make any kind of impact? You know, these sort of things. And uh, so you can begin to see you know, you know, certain, you know, and also self-selected versus uh, uh, predetermined avatars and so forth. But you begin to see with some, character, some characteristics that uh, people that use scientist avatars that, happened, that were uh, female had highest flow, immersion, and competence with, with, within the game experience, uh, positive affect, and, uh, and so forth. But then also all things being equal, then people perform better with shape than with likeness. And so it actually depends on uh, on the particular demographic that you're uh, working with, and then also on the relationship people have to that avatar. You know, it's another dimension because in, in another study uh, you know, we, we, we found that uh, if you know, some people use avatars just instrumentally, you know, just to play the game, just to get ahead, some use it as a place where they explore their identity, it represents them, and for the ones that just use it instrumentally, they didn't care about it, then uh, it, doesn't, it almost doesn't matter, but for the ones that think about it as representing themselves, then you know, some, you know, some of you know, those, those types of students actually are quite impacted you know, by the type of avatar that, that they have. So it's not even just the type of avatar, but also the type of user relationship to the avatar that you have to take into account. And so we're running a workshop that, 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 that is uh, aligned with a curriculum called the Exploring Computer Science Curriculum. Uh, this is a kind of major NSF-supported curriculum that, that is a kind of cutting-edge curriculum that's not just about programming, but also human-computer interaction, and sort of data literacy, you know, sort of web literacy, privacy, security, all these other types of topics besides just uh, coding. And, and then we're running a workshop to get students excited about computer science connecting these topics to their own kind of generative themes is a term that Paulo Freire uses, you know, basically their own interests. And then that game, uh, Namazi, that you saw, we, we have an interface called Maystar, where you can customize it based on your own kind of interests and community and, and so forth. So we go into the schools, and besides just having, uh, seeing uh, sort of what they do with the system and teaching some of these computer science concepts, also show them that computer science can uh, uh, be engaged with the, you know, the, their own interests that they have within their own, within their own communities and, and, and lives. And so you know, that's what the NSF is supporting for us to do for the next uh, 25 months or, 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 or so with, with, this, with this project. Uh, yes? Um, I'm, I'm going to refer to the, to, the, to the last thing that um, you showed about the, mm -hmm. about the photography and uh, the conflicts. Um, yes. And um, I, I was just um, wondering if you had uh, any um, war 
stories, I guess, in a, in a, in, in a way that the, the reification, the, the, this, this kind of statistical reification of um, empathy. Uh, and um, I guess the, the, the kind of question that comes out of that would be, uh, do you think that um, empathy uh, requires, like true empathy requires non-conscious believing? I think it's a really good question that you're asking, and I should say that the video, I think it has a bit of a kind of promotional flavor, and I think it's very effective for that kind of purpose because it's a trailer video. It's not a kind of scientific video there. So in terms of talking about empathy, that's not the kind of soundbite version. Actually, there are a number of different ways that people begin to study empathy. And actually, a lot of the kind of studies of empathy look at empathy as a kind of a, 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 a trait, you know, something like introversion or extroversion, right? So that's you know, one of the fundamental ways of looking at empathy as opposed to something that can be cultivated. You know, that's what, is, you know, what can be cultivated is actually what's called situational empathy. And so there are some studies that begin to look at sort of the development of, of situational empathy. But I think here, you know, this is a more kind of journalistic and arts project. Yeah, so I think you know, what uh, 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 Karine, the, uh, the director here, is talking about uh, in, in, that, in, in that moment is to see uh, what kind of visceral impact that people have as they go through this experience that they begin to, you know, that, I mean, to give one anecdote that he li likes to, to share, but that is after a period of intense, uh, of intense uh, combat uh, at, at some point, you know, he spoke to fighters on either side in, in Gaza, Palestinian combatants as well as Israeli combatants, to find after a month when he got in touch with them, you know, are you more or less okay? Physically, both, uh, both of them you know, survived and, and were okay, of course, uh, sort of mentally, psychologically, emotionally, then, then there, was some, uh, there, there was impact. But uh, at the conclusion of that conversation, uh, it always was striking to me that Kareem you know, you know, mentions that uh, Gilad says, uh, wait, I have one more question for you, and that is, how is Abu Khaled doing? And so in that moment when he asked about the well-being of his counterpart on the other side, the person who he's trained to kill, we feel like that moment is a kind of anecdotal suggestion that maybe some empathy was engendered in that moment, that at least you can think about the well-being of your, of your enemy. And so I think with this project, we're interested in you know, something like this that just pushes people you know, to understand that, you know, that there's a kind of humanity on both sides. It's not meant to sort of alleviate you know, the kind of deep histories and specificities of, of these kind of conflicts, but rather you know, just to kind of have a humanizing uh, function there. And so that's actually the way that I would describe it more than you know, something that you can sort of measure the amount of empathy that's generated. What we can actually measure, that, uh, currently that's with the video system, you know, that sort of mo motion, how long are you looking at person, somebody, are you avoiding their gaze or not avoiding their gaze, are you shuffling, are you moving or not, now, are you spending more time with somebody than you're spending with the other one? And we're also exploring biometric measures like EEG metrics as well as electrodermal sensor and yes, to find is what we're measuring with video sort of in line with what we're getting through, this, through the biometric measures to see if that's valid in some ways. And so, and those electrodermal sensors and EEG sensors can already can look at, at issues like attention, stress, and, and these sort of things. And so when you say, talking about what we're actually measuring, though that's what we're measuring, and then for us that becomes a proxy, sort of journalistically and artistically, to begin thinking about these issues of humanizing and empathy. So it's not a kind of direct process, and it's not something that I think about as a, as a kind of reduct, reductive you know, notion of empathy there. I, 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 I understand that. Um, I guess what what I'm really asking is, are you gonna um, are you planning on showing the results back to the people 
and having them sort of, you know, reflect on their results and like how, because that, that's, that's like, it has to do, I think, with self-evaluation, self like how much empathy you have and uh, how much empathy you should have. Maybe some other person had more empathy. Does that mean that he's a better person? Th those, those kinds of things. So how, uh, I guess, uh, my question is, how are you going to, how are you planning to, like, um, handle that data as this feedback loop. Right, so right now, so there's sort of two uses for that data. You know, one is, uh, you could say formative and, and summative, so that's data that feeds into the experience itself, you know, sort of change the way that the story unfolds. You know, that means if somebody isn't quite listening to this person, you, you want to, you know, to say, you know, you know, you know, let's say, if, if you find that somebody's more nervous with one or the other, does that mean you want to expose them more to that person or you want to expose them less? You know, so you have all these kind of parameters you know, that we can then begin to work with that can feed into the experience you know, to think about how do we uh, give what we think is the sort of most effective experience of, of the installation. Then the other type of, uh, of uh, use of, of the kind of results is to say, what's happening? Is the system working? Is it, is it actually generating empathy? Is it creating animosity? You know, you know, these sort of things. And, uh, and for that purpose, I mean, I think a lot of it actually is more the kind of assessment that comes out of journalism, you know, the arts, and other areas, more so than quantitative measures. I think, uh, you know, for example, critique, comparing this to other types of work that are in similar kind of, kind of veins. You know, that's uh, the kind of the, uh, speaking to people sort of subjectively after the experience. I mean, just anecdotally, I mean, a lot of people are quite emotional. They need some time to reflect you know, sort of after going through this experience. And so I think about it you know, you know, less as a kind of scientific experiment in, in, in that sense. Certainly, we'll have some kind of a, a, a data that feeds back into the experience. You know, but actually, I would evaluate it you know, not so much as a kind of quantitative scientific study, but more as a kind of subjective artwork and use those kind of metrics to, to think about it. And indeed, we plan to have the first, uh, I mean, the first major exhibition, you know, the dream would be to, to go back to uh, East Congo and to show it uh, there so people can actually uh, use the system. So we'll show some prototypes of the system ahead of that, but the, you know, the dream is actually to, to just deploy it in the, in the zones where combat is actually taking place. And then, you know, then the proof will be in, in, in the pudding, so how people actually uh, begin to respond and, and uh, uh, respond to the system and what the reactions would be. Uh, yes. Thanks, Paul, for that amazing um, presentation. And one of my questions was, I'm, well, I'm glad you mentioned Paul's up there because I, I kept in transformative learning because I kept thinking about you know, how, you, how we, you, you sort of emphasizing how you know, the pe people being subjects rather than objects and how that, that's one of the ways that we can sort of learn is like viewing ourselves as sort of subjects. But it, what it occurred to me that in, in what you're presenting, the sort of storytelling way in which we look at ourselves virtually, is to actually pick something that looks like ourselves, where generally in storytelling, if we do not have any kind of virtual counterpart, we could be invited to um, uh, not necessarily assume the identity of the protagonist of the story or anything like that, but we still identify with that protagonist, even if we know we cannot represent that protagonist or the protagonist doesn't represent us. So I guess my question would be, in this kind of scheme where, you know, we are supposed to look at ourselves as subjects which we normally can't do. We normally feel ourselves as subjects. How does that then play around with empathy? I mean, do you, is it sort of like through the mirror neurons or something get involved in which seeing yourself, which we normally can't see except in a mirror or whatever, or we can only see ourselves by ways of other people's reactions, does that then uh, change the way we're, we quote unquote act in a, in a virtual environments at all? Or would picking someone who does not look like us or something like that, or a character who looks very different from us, allow us to have greater empathy? I mean, 
Right, yeah, so, so I think it's a good set of questions. And uh, yeah, I can begin maybe just by expanding it, because it's not just only a matter of, of uh, you know, looking you know, like us or not looking like us. I mean, it's a huge area, because you, know, you say, at least graphically, you could make an avatar that looks like anything within the system. And then there are a lot of different types of identification that somebody could have with, with, the, with, with the system. You know, for example, uh, somebody could be playing as a, Pac-Man or Mario, and then say, I want to go to that corner over there. And then when they say, I want to go there, what exactly does that mean? And so we actually use the term blended identity, so that's looking at the way we selectively project aspects of ourselves and our cognitively onto these systems and the affordances that these systems, that these systems have, and the kind of, their kind of capabilities and so forth. And usually we're talking about some combination of the way that you know, something of uh, the, the person's you know, sort of physical world identity, including all the kind of cultural values and, 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 and so forth, or even maybe just their control and, and some aspect of what the system can uh, do. We're very rarely talking strictly about their physical world identity or just the technology, unless you're talking about just some technical aspect of the system, you know, like how many bytes you know, this particular avatar takes up or something like this. Usually we're talking about what I'm calling this kind of blended identity. And sometimes it's, again, in terms of control, sometimes it's in terms of cultural values and so forth. And so you have to begin to, to see how can we elicit what people are projecting in, in, into the system. And there are a number of different kinds of ways we can begin to look at that kind of a relationship. And so that's one, and some people, you know, that's you know, when you have, you know, have this character, then you, know, you can look at you know, sort of the data around it that's sort of accrued how the person talks to others within that virtual world, how they interact and so forth. And you can also begin to look at you know, how people customize their character and the kind of data within it. So basically you have the kind of individual level, the social level, the broader cultural level, and you can begin to look at sort of all those different dimensions about how somebody relates to, to, to that character. And then also, again, it's just not so much an idea of uh, yeah, yeah, because when you say uh, that it's different than what we have in, uh, in uh, yeah, say other types of experience because you're right there, when you use a blended identity kind of model, then you can say, is it uh, completely different or what are the ways in which it's uh, similar? Because you have other types of experience in, say, reading books that uh, Italo Calvino is not through that starts a book you are about to read Italo Calvino's If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. So that's you, you know, the second person talking about you within, within the system. Is that constructing a kind of uh, you know, virtual identity? You have others, uh, other systems in which you might have a virtual representation that you, you know, that you don't control. Pablo Ortiz, you know, uh, he's one of the PhD students in Ice Lab, just uh, mentioned a, a game, uh, uh, Rust, that just assigns you uh, uh, race and gender that you didn't decide for yourself. You know, that's, that's also very interesting there in the kind of way that people, you know, that there was uproar about that on forums and discussion boards, you know, this sort of thing. And so that's another type of evidence that's not just coming from the, the people, but in aggregate you can say, why is this there this kind of uproar? And people it also mitigate, you know, people would say things like, well, you know, like, I'm sure that, uh, you know, that if an African-American pers person had to play a white character, then they wouldn't be happy with that. And so it's totally reasonable for me not to want to play an African-American character. You know, so you have you know, these kind of discussions and people are speculating about the subject positions of others and so forth that begin to play out, not just the kind of uh, you know, black-white binary, but you know, sort of a whole range of kind of experiences. So again, you know, that's uh, one system, but the data is actually coming from the you know, kind of social environment you know, that's, uh, that, that people are immersed in. And so that's just a way of sort of complicating you know, your, your, your question by saying that there are a lot of different kind of dimensions of relationships to these avatars beyond just looking like, and then saying there are a lot of different uh, venues for collecting a sort of data about how people relate to those characters and begin to imp impact them. And then finally, I think for 
the idea of empathy, one of the main points I have is that these systems shouldn't just be, you, it's not just a matter of looking like, it's actually finding salient aspects of those experiences and a model of those salient aspects. That doesn't mean that taking those aspects and reducing that to, to a game could, could be totally let you understand the experience of others, but it becomes a kind of model or kind of metaphor or kind of a venue for looking at, you know, what are some of the structures that are at play around this kind of phenomenon, you know, say, of, of discrimination and so, and so forth. And so for me, a lot of time, it's not so much empathy, but it's something like when students you know, begin to learn, uh, say, the model of Newtonian uh, physics, at first they just look at the world and, uh, and observe things, and then they begin to find that there's some systematicity there. Actually, it's helping people to understand what are the, what's the type of systematicity around identity, and can we model that within the system and help people to be internalized and understand this? Okay, uh, and any other questions? All right, well then, uh, thank you very much for coming.